welcome to the Housing Connection, your direct link to the stories of successful housing development across our great state. I'm Chaz Olson, the Executive Director of South Dakota Housing and your host for this series. On the Housing Connection, we'll explore the practical insights from those actively shaping South Dakota's housing landscape. You'll gain invaluable knowledge on what works, what to avoid, and how to effectively leverage South Dakota Housing's development programs to meet the ongoing demand for affordable housing in our state. Get ready for an informative and engaging journey as we connect you with the strategies for housing success in South Dakota. Let's make some housing connections. Good morning and welcome to Housing Connections. My name is Chaz Olson, the Executive Director at South Dakota Housing. I'm here today with Toby Morris, Senior Vice President, Collier Securities. How are you doing, Toby? Good morning, Chaz. Super. Toby has extensive experience in infrastructure financing, so he's here today to provide some insight on the challenges, solutions, strategies uh, for communities across South Dakota as they navigate the complex world of infrastructure development and financing. Uh, First, Toby, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and your role as the Senior Vice President at Collier's? Yeah, uh, background really started back in 1996 when I went to work for Governor Janklow in the Governor's Office of Economic Development where you really truly learned what economic development was in the state and how to create public-private partnerships. And so I worked for Janklow for his t- his two terms, then went on to uh, serve with uh, Governor Mike Rounds when uh, at that point in time in 2003 or 2004, I set off to start my, my own advisory business called Dakota Capital Solutions. That was since then, uh, we merged into an underwriter out of Minneapolis and have uh, been doing uh, investment banking, public finance, really since about 2004 on a, uh, on a private side. Can you provide an overview of the importance of financing and infrastructure development, uh, particularly, when, particularly when transitioning from roads and utilities to more comprehensive projects? I would say the biggest thing when you get into infrastructure is being flexible. One of the problems you see communities and governments have is government by design is black and white. Developers generally always flow right within that that gray area because how you start out is generally not how you end. And creating that public-private partnership is truly one of the key items when it comes to uh, infrastructure. Because you think if a developer is putting money in the ground, that's it's sort of a, a non-collateralized asset. Yes, it adds value to the land, but banks for the most part are going to go, well, yes, you can put that in there, but until that land is sold, that that then becomes some of the issue when uh, infrastructure is going in is who's going to pay for it, how is it going to be paid for, what's the repayment, because it's, it's a big gamble unless you have a, a, a truly solid letter of intent uh, whether it's from a, a commercial business or even on single-family housing, because you have to sell, was it 20 lots, 40 lots, 100 lots, and the the, the repayment comes at a later date. So that's, that's what I would see uh, when it comes to the overview of the financing on that part. Yeah, and that's an interesting challenge, and I'm glad you brought it up because we have a lot. You have a lot of situations where you get the infrastructure in, in some of your more rural communities, and we've had this experience in the past where, um, you know, you have a developed, you know, set of lots that just sit vacant for years and years. Um, so, um, do you have any strategies or, or history with that, and how you maybe kind of turned that around and, and spurred that development, or you know, got some more buy-in from a developer? Can you think of any? experiences like that that you've had direct involvement with? 
it really comes down to managing expectations. Your say your development group or your city, they always have a different set of expectations because they think if you're going to go put 20 lots in, they're going to sell out immediately. Well, that might be the case if you're in Harrisburg, but not so much in Fort Pier. And so it's then what I try to do is remove the emotional aspect of it and put in the technical aspect and say, fine, here are the numbers. You know, I'm not right because I think I'm right. The numbers tell me if I'm right or wrong. And then it's for you to decide as the city or even the developer, is the risk worth the reward? Sure. And, you know, that, that that's where it becomes a partnership where you see some successful uh successful developments generally happen because of that partnership. So it's interesting you compared like a Harrisburg to a Fort Pier. Um, could you share some insights into the the key financial considerations that different types of communities in South Dakota should keep in mind when they did planning their infrastructure projects? One of the most powerful tools we see in the state and it's becoming more and more common is tax increment financing. And, and the misperception about TIFs, as we refer to them as, they just think it's just pennies from heaven and it's going to rain down. And it doesn't work that way. There's a lot of TIFs that get turned upside down because expectations weren't managed. I, I think one of the best examples in the state of a very positive pro-development was the city of Chamberlain. They went in and they uh, put all the infrastructure in. And you got to think, Infrastructure is our biggest impediment to growth in this state. Without infrastructure, whether you're a, a county and the roads to do value-added egg, whether you're single-family housing, whether uh, you want to do a commercial park, it all comes down to the adequate infrastructure. So what Chamberlain did is probably one of the, I think, the neatest, most progressive items was they went in and they built out uh, the road water sewer, and we created a tax increment district on that. Well, tax increment districts is only as good as fast as the building happens because it's a compounding effort the way the math works. So I went to the city council one night with their development group and I said, well, how do you plan on making sure these lots are sold? But more importantly, how do you plan on making certain homes are built? And they said, well, we're recruiting developers. And I said, that's great. I said, here's an idea. I said, you're asking 15000 for a lot. I said, I'd give away the lot. And they looked at me like I just got back from Colorado Gummy World. And I said, give away the lot. And they go, what do you mean? I said, make it a condition that if you give a lot, you have to have a home started and constructed within 12 or 18 months. And that actually drew a lot of state press. Kelloland did a nice uh, piece for Chamberlain. If For those of you that ever drive by, um, it's on the north side of the interstate. You can see it up there and you can really see the growth that is starting to happen on that. And again, that came back to the leadership of the city and the development corp to make that one work. Yeah. And that's been very successful so far. Correct. It is. And that was a partnership. You know, they went and recruited um, a home builder, I believe, out of Mitchell. Uh, they've also had local home builders come in and, you know, for the, the building home permits. I don't know what it was for 2023 so far, but you can definitely see uh, homes are going up. And that's the most important thing. And I'm glad you brought up the TIF financing because it's it's really, in, in my experience, seems like in some communities it's very well um, thought of and well-recepted. And in other communities, it seems to be kind of more of a four-letter word. Um, do you have any insight on why some communities are more pro-TIF versus others? That's a great question because there's been times I've been at meetings because I do a lot of TIF work and um, I've had some angry people shaking their fists at me because, you know, they don't fully understand 
they think that you're stealing from the school district, but they're the first ones to complain about their property taxes. And, it, and it's not the case. The legislature modified the, the tax increment rules here a couple years ago that we were instrumental working with Department of Revenue and the guide, oh, well, not the guidelines, the codified law of what needs to be implemented. It It's sort of the um, jealousy factor, I think. Some people don't think a developer should receive the benefit of a TIF when the TIF is really offsetting the risk and is the greater purpose you have to look at is the greater purpose for housing? Is it for jobs? What does it lead to? Uh, so you see the wide variety of um, of approving or disapproving of TIFs. There's some communities I wouldn't even go in for a TIF, and and yet there's others that um, yes, they're very open open minded on how they to be used. Well, I think it's funny when you your comment earlier that people think TIF, you know, you get a TIF and, and pennies just fall from the sky. Um, obviously, if you're going to do a TIF, you know, that that incremental financing or incremental revenue does not come until the homes are built. You start to collect the, pay, the taxes. Um, so you have to get a loan on the front end, um, often with TIF assignment and that sort of thing with for those proceeds. Do you find that some financial institutions are, are more receptive to doing TIF loans than others or are they all fairly, you know, receptive and open to, to those types of uh, financial packages? Uh, it's definitely with TIF, it's a level of sophistication. A lot of times, you know, if you don't understand it, you don't want to do it. And that's a good rule. I mean, you really should. If you don't get it, stay out of it. Uh, and so there's there's some banks that lend on them. Uh, they're very good lenders on it. And there's other banks that just completely shy away. It just really depends on their loan policy, the credit committee. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll work with non-conventional uh, lenders, whether it's, say, Gross South Dakota or Reed out there in, in Madison, uh, Heartland. They've uh, very pro-development on that side. So I call them non-conventional because uh, when you hit a bump in the road in the TIF, the regulators and banks have no sense of humor. And so, uh, you know, a good example, Chaz, is uh, I, I think what you guys did for the city of Coleman about 15 years ago when they started out, you lent based on the TIF and the development. And, you know, I think we closed that deal in 2006 and seven, and then, whoops, eight, nine, and 10 happened. And, and if that would have been with a regulated lender, it would have forced the development core probably into bankruptcy. But you guys worked through and ebbed and flowed and gave them the flexibility. Um, no different than what you did for uh, Madison on, on some of those tips that you've lent on. So I'm going to segue a little bit. Um, you know, you you have a little bit of experience working with um, tribes and tribal entities and communities. Um, can you talk a little bit about other considerations that tribes and tribal entities um, need to consider when they're developing infrastructure and and that sort of thing? When you get into infrastructure, whether you're a tribe, a community, government, whatever it may be, there has to be some kind of repayment stream to pay that. Uh, whether you borrow from DANR, it comes down to is it a surcharge? How much is it you know going to cost you to honestly flush this turd down the toilet? But it does come with those costs, and so there's the when you work with a tribe or you work with a government, they 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 are cl clearly different. There are different sources of funding for each one. Uh, I think one of the the most unique projects I've recently worked on was for a school district, the Ogallala Lakota School. It's a public school on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And so now you're mixing tribal and government to bring something together. And, and uh, through your leadership, we were just recently approved on that HIF grant, 
which when you get down into like the Pine Ridge, that is, we found the water capacity wasn't there. And so as that district is expanding, there's no more water. And, you know, Mark Twain said it best, you know, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. And so we were able to overcome a lot of those obstacles because you're taking school finance on a reservation, mixing it with South Dakota housing money. So that I think is one, one project to really be extremely proud of on that part. I agree. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that project up. It kind of does transition into my next question about the how how much these projects can vary in, in scope and complexity. Um, what are some common challenges and opportunities you've observed when it when it comes to financing um, these types of projects, um, both in you know your your tribal areas, uh, rural areas, compared to your more um, developed areas, you know, in your kind of middle municipalities and larger cities? I, I would say the biggest challenge is educating the public that infrastructure is not free. You want the luxury of turning on your faucet and have clean water coming out. You want the luxury of flushing your toilet and, you know, the poo goes away. But that goes into, a, you know, a treatment facility. And fast-growing communities, say like Harrisburg, where they took on a huge treatment facility a couple years ago, their surcharge was extremely high, but it has to grow into it. Now you get into a community that has a facility that's years and years old that needs to be upgraded, but they're not growing. That is a huge impact to them as well. And I think that the challenge then becomes is educating the public that you want the infrastructure, but it does come with a price. Government doesn't have an open checkbook. Cities, counties don't have an open checkbook uh, on that part. So that, that, you know, DNR does a great job over there with with, with their SRF funding and lending out at, at low interest. Uh, but again, it comes with a repayment issue. You talked a little bit earlier about the, the importance of the collaboration between public and private sectors, um, securing financing for infra- infrastructure projects. Um, what are some best practices for, for fostering those types of uh, relationships and partnerships? You know, what I say a lot to the cities, and it sounds a little goofy, but I say control the drama. And so developers know which cities have a lot of drama in it and which cities don't have a lot of drama. And I'm going to bring up my hometown up here where we live. And a good example of what I would commend the mayor and Christy and the council here in town was uh, our old city hall project. Is, is the city hall moved up off to 4th Street here in Pier, it left really a full block that was open. And I went to the council and I went to the city and I said, let's just not sell it to whoever wants to buy it, but rather let's put together a full development package and go out and recruit a developer. So we went and talked to what I'm always going to refer to as the varsity developers around the state. One thing that would always come up is they go, yeah, we'd consider peer. It seems to be very, I'm going to put it in my words, non-drama uh, because they, they run a very good council. They run a very good ship. And so what we did is eventually we recruited Hague companies to come in to eventually put in what's going to be a $40 million process or a project that's going to have uh, commercials, going to have apartments, it's going to have a hotel that's really going to revive but that doesn't happen unless you have a progressive-minded community. And that, that it's easier said than done. It really is. Every community has its challenges. You have your naysayers. You have those that will find any way to tear a project back down, the jealousy factor. There's just a host of 
of what I would call the boogeyman out there and not know where it's going to come from. So you mentioned, you know, Danner's SRF funding. We have the South Dakota Housing, HIF funding, TIF financing. So, you know, those types of programs and financing often involve navigating regulatory and compliance issues. Um, do you have any suggestions or um, comments on how communities can ensure that they are meeting these requirements to secure that financing? The, the biggest thing I would say right off the bat, hire the right professionals. Uh a lot of times uh, developers or cities think they can get in and do it themselves. And it's a lot cheaper to hire a professional at the beginning than to hire them at the end when they have to get you out of the mess that could have been easily avoided from the beginning. There's there's a lot of laws, a lot of regulations, whether it's the the public bidding side of things, whether if it's, if it's an ARPA, the Davis-Bacon, the right publications. And so that's... You, you, you want to hire the right, I can't stress that enough. And it's not meant to be a commercial by any means, but you truly will pay more if you don't hire the right professionals. Sure. I mean, some projects I see that get churned upside down is if if you went with sort of a, a one-person show for engineering to do a $5 million development, there's a reason why you have large engineering firms because they have a ton of resources available. And it's it's much cheaper to put the infrastructure in correct the first time than to tear it back out and have to put it back in the second time. So you did, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the non, you know, developing in the, the developers are more attracted to the kind of non-drama communities. Um, Given your expertise, do you have any other advice other, you know, other than the non-drama for community leaders to, to attract investors and secure financing for infrastructure projects that will benefit their community? I do. A lot of communities I work with is we try to set up guidelines at the beginning. Let's say uh, tax increment financing. I always tell communities, if you put in a policy, you're going to pay me more to get around your own policy. So let's call it guidelines. No two developments are really the same. But put those out there so you can see, one, you're you're managing the community's expectation of what's coming in. So, you know, economic development in this state has a wide variety of definitions. If I'm in Eagle Butte, it could be something as important as a veterinarian. If we're here in Pierre, it could it's housing. If you're in Sioux Falls, is it insurance? You, you know, what is economic development to each community? So if you have those guidelines in place, uh, a lot of times what we'll see to recruit developers would be um, um, call it the incentive package. Do we do sales tax rebate? And if you do sales tax rebate, for how much, for how long, and what do you specifically target that you're looking for? I'll go back to Harrisburg where we know retail follows rooftops. And one of the big important things at that point in time was uh, getting uh, the fairway grocery store because everybody was commuting into uh, Sioux Falls. Well, it's important for the city because cities live and die by sales tax and for them to get the sales tax off the fairway. So we worked with uh, um a developer over there in the city and put together a program. But again, it's it's being transparent, showing what the projects can be and the direction uh, cities want to move into. So moving away a little bit from attracting investors and attracting um, developers, 
um, and more back to kind of the community buy-in. Do you, in your expertise or in your experience rather, um, have you, do you do a lot of public meetings and invite the community, uh, you know, residents in? Is it, I mean, at the end of the day to get a TIF approved, you, you just need to really probably need the city council or the, you know, the, the leaders to actually approve it. But how important it is it to, um, you know, welcome the public to those meetings and get their buy-in and get their support, um, and in turn, the, the support of the city council? Um, it, it's incredibly important. Um, what I usually do for best practices, you have your codified law that says, yes, you have to have a public hearing and go through that process. I like to take it a step further and put out what's called a, a memorandum of understanding. We're testing the waters. We're saying, hey, Joe Public, this is what we're looking at. We've got a, you know, a big housing development coming in. We've recruited a developer. We're looking at doing this in terms of the tax increment. We're laying out what the potential terms will be. Again, in the spirit of transparency, you, you get in trouble when you're not transparent. You know, you can't over-disclose uh, what you plan on doing. So it's it's incredibly important on that because there's more misperceptions than there are. I mean, we, we know how the rumor mill works in South Dakota, right? And, uh, so it, it gets out of control if we don't control the grapevine. Yep. Uh, well received, definitely. So looking ahead, uh, what emerging trends or innovations do you see in the world of infrastructure financing, if any, and, and how can communities in South Dakota stay ahead of the curve in their planning and, and funding efforts? I, you're going to see more and more public-private partnerships. And when you can get a partnership like that in place uh, where you can somewhat spread the risk, uh, cities are, are going to be forced to take more of a leadership role in the infrastructure just because it's such a huge impediment. But it's a matter of how you mitigate that risk. It's to me, you know, everybody hears me talk will say, I work with the varsity. It, you get in trouble when you work with the junior varsity, somebody that's not capitalized enough if a city were to take some risks associated with that. But when you work with a very reputable developer and and, you know, the, the cities have to understand, I've always said, you know what you call a non-pushy, non-shovey developer? Broke. So <laughs> <laughs> that's just yeah. the way it works. So, you know, once you, you tame the egos a little bit and you can figure out how the partnership's going to work and you lay it out and you do the developer's agreement, uh, once you have that trust and you have that capability, your, your partnerships are really going to move forward. They really are. I mean, we've, we've got some great examples around the state. Um, take Gregory. Uh, you've been to Gregory lately? Can't say I have. <laughs> so if you would have went to Gregory, say, 10 years ago, one might say, wow, are the lights even on? Um, the city there worked hand-in-hand -hand with Avera to improve the hospital and the assisted living there. And very eventually, I want to say it was close to about $15 million that they invested in there. Now the development has really taken off. The city put in the road, water, sewer, and we have commercial that's growing in there. They're moving into housing. Uh, that momentum, you know, it's like a flywheel. That continued momentum has really sparked a tremendous amount of development in, in little town of Gregory. Right. It, it's great to see. It's just exciting. And, you know, they've got a wonderful mayor down there and, and city council. So, Well, and it really, you know, you your comment of, you know, wondering if the lights are, are, are even on in Gregory, you know, at one point, and now they seem to be thriving. Um, 
you know, we've heard a lot about the, you know, the going away of rural America and everybody moving into the main population centers and things like that. Is that a, a trend you continue, you think will continue? Or have you seen kind of an uptick in proactive uh, development strategies and, um, you know, downtown um, revitalization and things like that in smaller communities? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and generally it, it focuses around some kind of major employer. So if we go over, go over to Hamlin County and take Lake Norton, and so that's uh, the cheese plant, Agripeer did a major, major expansion about five or six years ago. I think they put in close to two, $250 million. But what that has done now, you go to uh, downtown Lake Norton and you're, it's your typical downtown and then boom, you got this beautiful contemporary looking building. And it's just like, holy cow. Now we got a housing development where they're putting in 20, 25 lots. The school, the Hamlin Education Center is expanding. And so, you know, I, sh I should bring up schools play a vital part of the growth of a community. They're the epicenter. No gym in any small community isn't used from six in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. You know, they are the truly one, the I would call some of the duct tape that holds those communities together. And if you see the school growing, housing's right behind it. Well, that means there's some kind of major employer that's probably driving it as well. So we're, we're seeing some really positive growth coming out of our smaller communities. Uh, Webster's a great example. You know, if you go to Webster, 23 years ago when uh, uh, the winner of, was it 96, 97, it basically made Webster an upside down soup bowl. It just <laughs> was surrounded by water everywhere. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the leadership of Mayor Mike up there and their development corp, they recruited uh, companies to come in. They, uh, they really put out the, the pro-business sign. They, uh, th their school expanded. The housing is there. They've really become the epicenter for Day County in that area. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of positive growth on those communities that want to grow. You know, but I, I would say this, if I was going to predict in the future – Last 25 years I've worked in this business, we've always wanted growth. COVID changed us. We're getting growth now, especially western side of the state, my hometown of Spearfish, Lee Deadwood, and that area. We got to be careful what we want because we're getting it in the droves. Um, you know, the money from out of state is coming mm -hmm. in. It's kicking us locals out. What we wouldn't have paid 200000 for a home is now selling for 500000 we're gonna we're gonna see some pushback, I think in particular western side of the state, uh, because of lack of a better word, I call it the Californication. I saw it in Bozeman when I did my undergrad there in the early '90s. It's it's coming, and we got to be careful what we want. No, oh, that's a really good point. I mean, you 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 hear about these migrations from the coasts, and that they're you know. The, the house prices that we're used to to them is, you know, it, it's it's pennies. And so they're they're able to come in, they're able to buy up a lot of lots, they're able to buy up a lot of land. Um, you know, with that kind of having some inflationary um, impacts on our, our housing market, in your opinion, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but do you see that ever kind of, um, you know, coming back a little bit? Or are we kind of, have we set a new, do you think we've set a new bar and a new kind of baseline? What was interesting is this Monday I was at the Spearfish City Council. About three years ago, the city of Spearfish did a very progress, progressive, extremely aggressive housing development where the city went in and put in all the infrastructure with the pure intent of workforce housing called Sky Ridge out there. And they limited the homes 
selling price. And that was like in 20. Well, COVID hits, inflation hits. And when I was at the council meeting on Monday, they're talking about really how to put restrictions on the sale price of the homes going forward. Call it rent control. Um, you know, we've seen it in Bozeman in particular. Uh, you know, you go to Jackson Hole where all the folks are, are moving in, but they want the services. You know, they want their kids to go to school. They may make $5 million a year and a teacher makes 55000 a year, but a teacher can't afford the $400,000 home. So I, I'm really watching to see how the Spearfish one plays out. I commend them for taking that role because it, we're not too far behind. I'm going to go back to to the Bozemans, to the Idahos, to the Jackson Holes. It's coming. And, and we, we've got to protect our South Dakotans, in my opinion, because we're not – we're not a very wealthy state in terms of, you know, the corporate jobs that pay several hundred thousand. We we know how to work, but that that's what's going to really uh, uh, turn us around a little bit, especially on the Western side. Well, Toby, I thank you today for coming in and um, talking a little bit about your perspective on infrastructure financing, on community engagement, you know, private-public partnerships. Is there anything I didn't ask you or anything we didn't discuss that, that you'd like to cover? Any comments, concerns? You know, it's kind of your your chance to, to say anything that we made maybe didn't cover that you wanted to talk about today. No, I think we're looking good. Maybe next time if you bring some beer, we can solve some more problems. But uh, uh, <laughs> it's a challenging world out there. And I, I will say this, you know, I, I commend South Dakota Housing with uh, the money that you guys are working with. You, you, you have a lot of successful projects out there. You really do. And um, I, I commend you for that. And thank you for having me on the show. Well, thanks, Toby. I appreciate those words. We are, as you know, we're we're working hard. We're doing our best, making a mm -hmm. diligent effort to to get this money out to projects that we think are um, good for the communities, good for the state, and and be as good as stewards of the money as we can. So I appreciate those words, and we'll continue to do our best. Um, thanks for your time today, and uh, until next time. Um, All right, we both have a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Thank you.